You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Hi, my name is Greg LeBlanc, and this is Unsiloed, and I'm here today with Rick Bookstaber, who is the head of risk at Taligent Financial. He's a practitioner in the world of finance, has been for many years, worked at Bridgewater, worked at Morgan Stanley, Solomon Brothers, was the chief risk officer here at the University of California, spent a lot of time in government working for the Department of Treasury in the Office of Financial Risk, also at the SEC at a very exciting time in our history right after the uh, financial crisis, has a former life as a professor, maybe we could talk a little bit about that, at Brigham Young University. But the reason why I have you here today, Rick, is because of the books that you've written, which I I think are wonderful books, the most recent of which is called The End of Theory. And we'll talk a bit about this. The subtitle is Financial Crises, the Failure of Economics, and the Sweep of Human Interaction. And then your previous book, which came out in 2007, which I dug up and read at the time, it was a very timely book. It's called The Demon of Our Own Design, Markets, Hedge Funds, and the Perils of Financial Innovation. So welcome, Rick. Glad to have you here. Yeah, thanks. It's good to be here. The title of the book is pretty provocative. And I think people in academia, people in the financial profession, they they might see this as a bit of a a broadside against kind of what we do in academia, which is we try to develop and design models that simplify the world and help us to understand the world and maybe make predictions about the world. And I think your main point is that these models are inadequate, incomplete, and in need of of serious reinvention. And the way you start off the book is by mentioning that policymakers were super frustrated with the economics profession for failing to predict the financial crisis of 2007. So could you tell us a little bit why you picked the title and what really is your beef with financial modeling in general and the use of economic models surrounding the workings of the financial system in particular. Yeah, so beyond the fact that they don't work, (laughs) I'm actually surprised Princeton University Press let me get away with that as a title because it is pretty provocative. But the point is that economics is so focused on theoretical structures to the exclusion of the realities of the market, it's better to have a a pretty set of equations that are self-contained than in looking at the nature of the markets themselves. And a lot of that's because neoclassical economics has its roots going all the way back to the 1800s, the mid-1800s, where it's patterned itself and still fancies itself as being an offshoot of the mechanical view of the world of physics. And with physics, it's not like atoms are trying to figure out what you're doing and change their behavior accordingly. But that's the way the markets are. The the markets inherently are human. As humans, we create and we innovate. So things constantly are changing. We have experiences. And based on our experiences, when we change, that changes the nature of the markets as well. So you have a real dynamical process that requires something more than an equation-based approach where the equations assume that the world is well-structured and you have regularity conditions that that work. So the the basic issue is you can't take a mechanically-based system, run on a bunch of equations, and think that it's going to do the job when you're dealing with a financial system, especially, and this is what I focus on really, especially on times of crisis. George Box famously said, 
all models are wrong and some are useful. So it seems like the problem is not with models in general, but with the specific models that economists have been using for the last couple of decades. That's right. So I advocate in the book and I use in practice models to try to understand the dynamics of the system. And that's really a complex dynamical system. And there are models out there that are really suited to that purpose, but they're not attractive models in the way that economists want attractive models to be, because they can't be represented as a set of equations that are well-defined and that you can expand on. The models are based on simulation methods. So the issue is not really with models, broadly speaking. It's with the type of neoclassical models that have a set of clear failings, in my view, when it comes to complex dynamical systems and the markets. And just said the markets, especially during periods of crisis, are complex dynamical systems. So in the book, I really focus on four characteristics of the market that the neoclassical, the standard economic models fail to take into account. I call it the four horsemen of the economopolis. And I go forward from there. So the book is, it's a strong critique against economics, but it doesn't leave you hanging because I do think there are models that can imperfectly, but can at least address the issues. Is the main problem, or one of the main problems with the traditional models, is their emphasis on equilibrium, the focus on solving for equilibrium, but that markets are in a constant state of disequilibrium? Because agent-based modeling also are used to kind of calculate end states or, or equilibria. Yeah, it's that to get tractable models, if you're rooting it in a computationally reducible system of mathematics, requires regularity conditions so that if something starts going off the rails, there's kind of this elastic band to make sure it gets back on the rails, because if it starts going off the rails and starts going down the cliff, you now have sort of a chaotic system that doesn't work anymore within the closed system of, of your model. So one of the characteristics that leads to failure with the economic, uh, the standard approach is that you have a structure that even if it's put in a very simple form, can lead to what's called emergent phenomenon. The whole can look a lot different than the, the individual parts. So for example, in the flow of traffic, you can have just unaccountably, everybody can be going along into the market and unaccountably, there's a traffic jam. You wonder why did that happen? Oh, there must be a, an accident up the road. Then two miles later, everything's back to normal. There was no accident, there was no road work. So everybody's doing what they think makes sense. Nobody's doing anything differently, but there's an emergent phenomenon that leads to this congestion in spite of looking at the microscopic of the individuals. And that's kind of the way the markets are. That congestion is like a crisis or market dislocation. So that's the kind of thing that exists in the real world that standard models can't really accommodate. But I think in finance, the academics have been adding all sorts of bells and whistles to the standard models, right? So adding in feedback loops and thinking seriously about agency issues and thinking about information problems and thinking about liquidity and frictions and so forth. Would you argue that what most of financial economists are doing, especially since the crisis, by adding in behavioral elements and informational elements, are they just sort of, is this just becoming like a bunch of Ptolemaic? 
curly cues around the old yeah you know, earth centric model and need to be completely supplanted or are they getting closer and closer to a better approximation of what's happening i've had this discussion with economists and you can take any one particular item and they'll say oh no we deal with that we have x and then they'll say oh no we have models they deal with y but here's the thing you can make modifications around the edges but the fact is you're using what's called a computationally reducible methodology to deal with what's called a computationally irreducible problem. That is, there are some problems in the world that you can do all the analysis you want. You can try to put it into any functional form, any set of equations. It's not going to work because the system is what's called computationally irreducible. And this is not like some way out there thing. I'll give you two examples, and I go through them in my book, of computational irreducible systems. You cannot figure them out based on equations that are one point removed from trivial. One is what's called Conway's game of life. You have a grid, and you color different points black in the grid, and then you have a simple rule that if there's nobody around that point, it dies from loneliness. If there's three or more, it crowds out because there's too much of a crowding for resources, however you want to put it. But if there's two or three, then it'll expand out. You get this system that grows. I think it's it's kind of a fun computer game to look at. That's a computationally irreducible problem, even though it's something that's run based on black and white squares based on four rules. If I just randomly put a bunch of black squares on the grid, and I tell you, I want you to set up a set of equations that can tell me what this will look like after a hundred iterations. You can't do it. The only way you can do it is to simulate, to take it and walk the path all the way to that hundredth point and see what's there. Another example is the three-body problem. Fortunately, the system we have right now of celestial bodies fits into one of a narrow group of categories where everything is predictable. But broadly speaking, that's a system that's computationally reducible. If I just arbitrarily pick a bunch of three bodies with the rules of motion and tell you what's going to happen, if you're lucky, if it fits within one of, it turns out, 13 different categories, you can solve it. Otherwise, you can't solve it. The only way you can solve it, so to speak, is to simulate and follow the path period by period as everything moves around and gradually something just flies off into the universe. So if things that simple are not amenable to analytical methods, why do we think that the markets are? And by the way, I haven't even introduced uncertainty. These are deterministic systems. So if that's the world, you can take a set of equations, you can expand it any way you want. You're still not going to get there because the very nature of the problem does not admit that type of an analysis and solution. So you mentioned these four things, the fact that the standard models don't really account for emergent properties. You mentioned computational irreducibility, radical uncertainty, and ergodicity. Say a little bit about ergodicity. Yeah. So the whole idea is you assume for a lot of these models that you know the distribution, that the distribution mm -hmm. is stable in certain ways, that the world's not going to change, much less change in unknown ways, which is the radical uncertainty. If you have an ergodic process, you can replay the world over and over again. If you know the world now and you're parachuted into a world 10,000 years from now, everything will kind of look the same. But we know that the markets 
aren't that way because the markets are constructed based on humans who change with experience, who invent, who create. So the market today is different than it has been in the past because we have innovations now that we didn't have in the past. People in the market have experiences of different things going wrong, and they're hopefully not going to repeat, at least not repeat in exactly the same way, the things that happened in the past. You don't have to think too deeply for this. The, the standard method, in fact, I'd say virtually the only method that's used for risk management is a very simplistic statistical approach where you take the past market behavior, maybe over the last year or the last two years, exponentially weighted if you want, put it into Gorch process if you want, whatever you want to do. The fact is you're looking at the past to get a sense of the risk going forward over the next month or year. That's only going to work if the future is drawn from the same distribution as the past. It's only going to work if you have something that's ergodic. But we know that that's not the case because we know how the markets change. We know that there are periods like 2008 that simply didn't look like the last two years or indeed like anything in the past. Computationally reducibility is an indictment of the attempt to use a pure mathematical formulaic approach. The lack of ergodicity is an indictment of the attempt to use statistical methods that suggest some sort of stability and common distributional characteristics to the market. Now, I think finance is one of these disciplines that's unique in that it has direct relationship to practice. You've seen this transference of knowledge from financial economics directly into sales and trading and investing. And we have financial engineering programs where models are are taught and then people go out and immediately act upon them. So these flaws that you're pointing out, I think if they were limited to the academy, it would be kind of less interesting. But you've seen in practice how these ideas have impacted behavior. And in particular, when you think about the three-body problem and you think about the 16 known solutions, it's a whole lot easier just to assume that you're in one of the worlds that fits the model rather than acknowledge that the models don't work. To what extent have you seen, particularly in your role as risk manager, practitioners assume the model and then try to make the reality fit with the model rather than modifying the model to fit reality? I'd say that it's almost universal that people take the model and assume the reality will fit that model. But most risk managers understand the limits of that approach. So people castigated risk management sort of justifiably in a sense during the 2008 crisis. But risk managers, I think by and large, knew that their models were somewhat bankrupt when it came to dealing with crises because of the reasons I said, it's no mystery to people in risk management that the risk models they use only work if the future looks like the past because they're measuring the future based on the past. I don't think it's the case that they would say, yeah, we've got this model and hey, if some crisis occurs, we'll deal with it. They're saying we have this model and essentially it's only good as far as it goes. But that's all that they have. That's all that tends to be taught. So put it another way, if somebody put a gun to my head and said, give me one number to give me a good representation of where risk will be over the next month. I'd probably use value at risk. 90% of the time, I'd be okay, because 98% of the time, the next month will look like the past number of months. Fortunately, that 5% or 2% of the time, when it doesn't work, is the time that the risks really matter. So I don't think for the profession of risk managers, broadly speaking, 
it's not like they're totally ignorant of the problem. It's that nobody in academics has been willing to address it by using new models. They've taken the approach that's existed now for 20 some years. Value at risk has been around since the early 1990s. And they do fancy little changes on it. They might use a garch process. They might fatten the tails. They might look at one side of the distribution. But it doesn't change the fact that they're just using history as a sense of getting a sense of risk going forward. One of the critiques that you made in, in the book was that economists tend to think in terms of like a representative agent that's capable of making complex computations in the presence of an almost in a complete set of data. And you highlight the importance of heuristics. And this is something which I think behavioral finance people have been emphasizing for a long time. But the behavioral finance approach is that this is a problem, this is a flaw, that this is a weakness with respect to the agents. I think in your book, you highlight that heuristics are actually appropriate in certain circumstances. Can you talk a bit about that? Anybody who looks at the market understands that individuals are not fully optimizing full information agents. All you have to do is go around and look at them. And the agents are no mystery. You have Morgan Stanley, you have Goldman Sachs, you have Wells Fargo, you have Fidelity, you have Citadel. All of them are doing different things with different information sets. There's no sense that there's some representative agent. They're all doing different things. And a lot of what they're doing is qualitative. If there's a problem in the markets, say in the high yield market, you'll get a group of senior people at say Goldman Sachs They'll all get around table together and they're going to be saying, okay, what do we think is going to happen to the liquidity of this market? Should we be aggressive in providing liquidity to our clients or do we have to pull back? And somebody will say, well, I'll make this up, but Morgan Stanley has been very strong in trying to carve out a space in high yield. They're likely to want to really strongly defend this market. I think they're going to pull liquidity together to go into the market there. And so we can be more confident each agent is reflecting on other agents and what they're going to do, what their heuristic is to determine what they're going to do. And as one agent acts, that changes the environment for other agents. You lose all of that when you try to get a single representative agent or even classes of agents. And the representative agent notion is at the foundation of most of the methods of standard economics. And I'd have to say behavioral economics doesn't get you away from this because it's just adding refinements of functional form to the standard paradigm. It's not saying, wait a minute, there's emergent phenomenon. What are we going to do about that? It's not saying, wait a minute, there's computational irreducibility, so our equations can't even apply. It's not saying, wait a minute, the nature of people is to invent and innovate. It's just saying, we're seeing this behavior. How do we tweak the equations without breaking the current model to try to look at it. Or they might just say, oh, it's an anomaly and go on from there. So the issue is not saying we have to improve the behavioral component of the models. To say it puts lipstick on the pig is an unfair statement, but it's that sort of thing. I think you're making a stronger claim, which is that heuristics are sometimes more resilient than more complex decision rules. I think that that was part of your message that in a world of unpredictability, algorithmic decision-making that is simpler and more general can sometimes survive better than ones that require more information and that are more complex. That's right. So if I know the world today is going to be the same as the world 10,000 years from now, and I can deep dive into it in huge detail, I probably could come up with a super complex but correct optimal method. 
But as soon as I say that things can change and may change in unexpected ways, and, and you know, it has to change. If you believe that change is because of creativity and innovation, by definition, it's going to change in ways that you won't expect because creativity is only creative because it's something that didn't already exist and wasn't already expected. I wrote a, a paper back in 1985 called On the Optimality of Course Decision Rules, and it was published in the Journal of Theoretical Biology. The reason it ended up in a biological journal is because people simply would not buy into the notion at the time of rational expectations in economics. But what I did is sort of ask the question, why is it that some animals seem to just ignore information? They have coarse decision rules. And my hypothesis was that they do that because sort of with their genotypical prior, they understand, or the ones that survived, somehow understood, you know, at the genome level, that the world changes in surprising ways. So you might have a bird that has exactly the right beak to crush a particular berry that's really abundant in some jungle. So it's optimal for that jungle. But when the jungle disappears, it disappears. Whereas you have the example I like is a cockroach, which doesn't smell or see or hear. It just moves based on puffs of wind on these little hairs on its legs. It's not optimal in any environment, but it's good enough. It has a coarse decision rule that works as a jungle turns to a desert and the desert turns to a city. Cockroaches have figured it out. People have figured it out. And people inherently don't optimize in what they're doing because they kind of get the idea that a simpler heuristic is going to be more survivable as the markets change. And the fact is that the markets do change. So if you start with a representative agent, you've got a problem. If you start strictly with equations that ignore the notion of computationally reducibility emergent phenomenon, you've got a problem. And if you use optimization as the method of decision-making, you've got a problem because the markets don't work that way. Now, some would argue humans are more complex, can learn more quickly. And so by relying on culture rather than on genotypical hardwired decision-making, we can respond more quickly to changes in the environment, right? With better, more precise rules, right? That are more information dependent. I want to have you uh, elaborate a little bit on the biological insights because you're using agent-based modeling and agent-based modeling kind of has its origins in biology. I incorporate agent-based modeling into a number of my classes, including my behavioral finance class. Can you tell us what's different about it? What attracted you to it? And what can we learn from it? Who ought to be studying agent-based modeling? How can we incorporate it into financial economics? I'd say anything that has something that can be defined as agents, almost by nature, should be using agent-based modeling. A system that has agents, in my mind, is first of all, you have a bunch of them. Secondly, they operate more or less independently. And third, when they take action, that action is reflected back to change the environment. Again, one of the examples I like is traffic flow. There you have clear agents, each driver of a car. Each agent behaves more or less independently. They have their own individual heuristics. Some people speed, some people change lanes a lot, some people tailgate. And third, an agent, when a car does something, it affects the environment around it. If a car sort of makes a quick turn into your lane, the environment has changed. And based on your heuristic, you now do something, hopefully hit the brakes. So traffic has that characteristic. People trying to get out of a nightclub when there's a fire have that characteristic. COVID, epidemics and pandemics have that characteristic. 
because what I decide to do is a function of my understanding of who's around me and the situation with the pandemic. If I do something, it affects other people based on my connection with them. And the HMAS modeling is used in all those different areas. So markets clearly are the same way, that you have agents who more or less make their own decisions based on different heuristics. When they make those decisions, by their very buying and selling, they change the environment. You said in the book that if we had just autonomous vehicles on the road, then we wouldn't need agent-based modeling for that. But it seems to me that you would. And agent-based modeling was, in fact, designed for robots. If we think of biological organisms as robots with hardwired preferences and genotypically dictated decision rules, right? So agent-based modeling is really about when you have agents interacting with limited information sets that are responding to local information, whether they're agents capable of learning or not, right? Yeah. There's some videos on this that are just fascinating. Floors like Amazon would have, where you have these little robots that run around gathering packages and moving them to different locations. And they all have this simple rule that you wonder, how do they avoid each other? Well, as they go along, they see, so to speak, if there's another one coming this direction, and they have a right-of-way rule for who goes first, and it's worse than a roadway because they're moving back and forth on an entire grid. So yeah, each of them is an agent. Each of them has a behavior rule. The behavior rule is the same for all of them, and it's been set based on a total knowledge of the environment so that their actions don't actually change the environment. So they now right. have an environment that's ergodic, that is structured so it doesn't have emergent phenomenon because they don't allow the feedback of interactions. And so my guess is that if you structure things in that way, you now do have a computationally reducible system. I don't know for sure, but you could use an agent-based approach to look at it and you could know based on what every robot's doing, how it'll progress over time. But I think if it's well-designed, is going to be ergodic. It certainly won't have radical uncertainty, uh, so long as you don't have something really strange happen with a robot going haywire, and it won't have emergent phenomena. Yeah, I think you're making another point on top of the idea of using agent-based modeling, which is that you have strategic actors. In biology, we use agent-based modeling, but we don't have strategic actors. They're engaged in parametric optimization rather than kind of strategic optimization. And with humans, humans have this characteristic where their goal is to actually change the environment. And so I think of what you're doing as really importing concepts which are normally seen in the field of strategy into the world of finance, because it's in strategy where models break down. It's in the world of strategy where we think in terms of frameworks, really, more than models, because we don't think that the world is capable of being fully modeled. And you actually reference in the book, John Boyd. Now, I actually didn't know about John Boyd. This story was fascinating for me. I'm wondering if you could recount that story for us here. Yeah, so John Boyd was a famous strategist, somewhat of an iconoclastic strategist back in the late 40s and into the 50s and early 60s, I believe. He figured out the optimal strategy using dogfights so that you could sort of change the ideas to change the environment of your opponent more quickly than he could respond. Then you can change it more and more quickly than he can respond. And you sort of get ahead with him. And he was famous. He almost never lost a dogfight over many, many years. He understood the basic notion that if you're in a battlefield environment or if you're in a war, 
you by nature have what could be called radical uncertainty because the whole objective of your opponent is to do things that you didn't think of. One of the things he said that I think is great, he said, if you can model it, you're wrong. Because if you can model it, your opponent is going to do something that's outside of that model. So things are hard enough already, right? It's already hard enough when you have many people just trying to do what they're going to do based on the heuristic, like people in a roadway. It's even worse if one of the people on the roadway figures out a way to jump over the cars ahead of it, doing something where you say, oh, okay, here's the Geneva Convention, here's the rules of the road, but outside that, anything goes, and I want to get to places before everybody else, so I'm going to exude smoke from the back of my car and, and have something that allows me to jump over other cars, and it's like, whoever thought of that? Any model that you have, it's not going to have that in place. So as we move along from something that's like the robots very carefully planning out what they're doing, to world with people just acting and changing the environment in ways that can lead to this sort of emergent phenomenon, to the, the case of where people are gaming to try to gain advantage. We get more and more complexity. And in the markets, it may not be warfare. And I, I don't think it's fair to use the warfare analogies, although some people like to. But the whole nature of innovation is to gain an advantage. The only way you make a lot of money in the market if you're traders to do something that's unexpected and other people aren't already doing. That's part of what I'm saying, that that leads to the creativity and the innovation that makes the markets change over time. One thing too, and you mentioned this a little earlier, we can adapt and we can respond. And when things do change, we can say, oh wait, the world's changed. Now I should alter my behavior accordingly. But even if everybody's doing it and they're doing it in different ways and with different timeframes, you still get the same problem. You don't get a nice, smooth transition to the new world. Yeah, I was looking for the quote here that was in your book, you know, equilibrium is death. <laughs> and recently I went out and gave a talk to some folks at a big hedge fund. And the key point that I was trying to make is that the difference between kind of operations and strategy is that operations is problem solving in a world that is is not trying to prevent you from solving the problem. But strategy is, is when you're trying to solve a problem and there are others that, that are trying to prevent you from solving the problem. And so when you take people, particularly in, in hedge funds, we have a lot of people who have kind of sharpened their teeth in the world of machine learning, in, in pattern recognition, and then they go into trade and they're trying to trade based on predictions that are taken from training data that's historical and so forth. And then they realize that none of the models work. And that the uh, the world today is different from the world yesterday, and that's primarily because you've got other people out there who are also developing models. The process of developing models makes them inaccurate when you're interacting with other agents. For a while, I had a equity hedge fund as part of a company called Frontpoint Partners, which unfortunately disappeared because one of the other partners ended up being convicted of insider trading. So that was you couldn't have predicted that. That's right. Yeah. But what I would do, you know, and I'm sure everybody who's in a quantitative fund does this, is you look at all the work that's been done in academics in terms of the identification of what are called anomalies, but actually are alpha opportunities, apparently. And I'm probably not the only one who's gone through paper after paper, taken that result, tried to carry it forward to now, and found that it didn't work. And it doesn't work because, of course, other people discover it. And in fact, the academic researcher probably only discovered it 
because people told him about it. And if people had identified it, then by the time they told him about it, it was old history. So it worked over the historical period and then it doesn't anymore. So the whole notion of the innovation and strategy really comes to the fore if you're trying to run a hedge fund and make money. Yeah, I have a former professor who wrote a paper that identified alpha and commodity futures over like an 80-year period, and he published the paper. And ever since the paper was published, there's been no alpha. And so I I asked him, I was like, why did you publish that paper, right? Why didn't you just go out and get a billion dollars of funding and trade on it? And he said, look, this is the kind of stuff that was in the air. Everybody was thinking about it. Everybody was discovering it around the same time. But you mentioned George Soros in your book and reflexivity. and, And I think that that concept of reflexivity is what we're discussing here. And you mentioned that you're surprised that academics don't take him seriously, right? Is that just because he's a practitioner? Why is it that his ideas are not more pervasive in academic finance? It's really a mystery to me. First of all, he has a theory and he's made tons of money based on that theory. So there ought to be some empirical proof there that that has value. Part of it might be that nobody wants a billionaire to be a philosopher. So he is ignored in academics because of that. It could be that he never articulated his reflexivity very well as a concept. I tried to do it justice in what I wrote. There's a few other people who've written about it better than I think he has. I think he's one of the great philosophers and most astute students of the market over the past, you know, pick any number of decades, you know, last 50 years. And the basic idea is not that difficult. It's saying that there is this sort of Dynamic. He sort of is identifying the notion of the market as a complex dynamical system and that people interact based on what they're observing in particular ways. Yeah, I found his concept of reflexivity something that's really interesting, but just has not seemed to have captured the attention of academics. That concept was John Merriweather when he said, you know, when you offer insurance on hurricanes, it, it does not inspire the hurricanes to happen. <laughs> Right. But when you offer insurance on financial products, that does change the probability of the events happening. And I was wondering if you could go back to 1987, because you were actually in the markets back in 87 when the crash happened. And you were familiar with portfolio insurance, which was developed by a couple of my colleagues here at Berkeley. And talk about how that experience helped to shape your perceptions of the markets. I was actually right in the middle of that, along with Leland and Rubenstein. And O'Brien was L-O-R, Leland O'Brien Rubenstein was the company they developed to push portfolio insurance. And it was a great idea. I mean, it was a natural idea. It was simply saying options, of course, give you protection, but you can't buy an option on a giant portfolio. Certainly then you couldn't. So why don't we use the Black-Scholes-Merton approach to dynamically hedge as if we had an option? Well, that works if two things are the case. The volatility stays stable and you have liquidity to do the dynamic hedging. But as more and more people went into the strategy, the first thing that happened was volatility went up because more and more people were buying and selling and accentuating the movements and liquidity dropped because so many people at the same time had to go into the market to do their hedge. So this is an obvious case of reflexivity, an obvious instance of a change in the nature of the markets, a clear case where you had agents taking action, their action changed the environment, which in turn changed their actions or should have. It didn't fast enough. Sandy Grossman, among others, did notice 
that this was not a game that could end well if too many people tried to do it at the same time. And a demon of our own design of one of my colleagues at Morgan Stanley when I was doing this, who recognized the same thing, tried to explain it to me and I just didn't get it, but he did. He put on a lot of option positions and retired with what at the time was a substantial amount of money. Nowadays, it'd be like, eh, not so much, but he was pretty clear on it. So this is a case where you have an innovation, but people didn't see through to the implications. Basically what happened in October on the 19th, when the market dropped 20%, the market dropped some, actually it dropped a bunch on Friday. People had to hedge and the way you hedged is you sold, you reduced your position dynamically. That selling in the futures market didn't elicit liquidity on the other side because the cash market wasn't even open yet. And it didn't operate as quickly as the computers operated in the futures. So that selling dropped the price because the price dropped, people had to sell more because it dropped more. They had to sell yet more. Meanwhile, the people who could provide liquidity, the fidelities of the world were not like sitting there with their finger on the button, the way that the computers were. So you had this asynchronous approach, which could have been modeled, but wasn't. And actually, it's really funny. Richard Feynman was asked somewhat after this about the crash. And, you know, what does this mean? Like physics versus finance? He said, well, the problems in 87 are a lot more complex than what you get in physics, because atoms and electrons aren't trying to figure out what you know about them and do something opposite based on it. That gets to the point of what ought to be embedded in an analysis of economic markets, certainly financial markets, that doesn't allow a mechanistic approach to work. You told another story in the book about tightly coupled systems or different systems that seem to be operating in isolation, but there are these feedback loops. And you tell the story about the blackout in Italy. That was another story that I had not heard, but which will no doubt be added to the list of stories that I'll talk about in class. Could you recount that story for us too? Yeah. So this is why this is interesting is to show people do a lot with networks nowadays. And with networks, you have the same problem that they assume things are stable. They have natural links. You have nodes. Actually, an agent-based model and a dynamical system can be thought of as a network that's changing period by period. Some nodes are disappearing, some linkages are being severed. So this, what was called the White Knight, N-I-G-H-T, the White Knight was a, a big celebration in Rome that was patterned after one that occurred somewhat earlier in Paris, where the, the streets were open all night and there were all kinds of festivities. Pavarotti, I think, was singing at an opera and so on and so forth. And while this was happening, there was a problem in some substation of an electric line in Switzerland. And the problem was, as you know, when there's a problem with an electric system like that, you have to knock out, you have to cut the power or else one node cascades to another node and this overload keeps on going down line. Well, they had logistic, basically computer servers associated with each of these nodes to determine what to do based on load. But those systems use the electricity from the node. So you had this ridiculous situation where you had two parallel systems, the electric system and the information system, but each one could hopscotch on the other. So you, you had the computer try to say something, but when it did it, the result was something that cut out its power so the thing couldn't relate to the next. And the end result was 
power went out around 3 a.m. in the morning in uh, Rome, leaving all these people stranded. The subways obviously couldn't work. It was raining. You know, it's kind of this dismal system. But the key message there, our lesson, was this multi-layered network and having two things that interact in a way where any problem is propagated from one network to the other. And that's the way it tends to be in markets as well, where great example in markets is that you may have a hedge fund that's highly leveraged. There's a problem in one of its uh, positions. And when it has a problem in that position, it naturally starts to liquidate, but the power goes out, so to speak, can't liquidate anymore because that market's failed. If it can't sell there, it sells down the line this other position that may be wholly unrelated functionally or from an economic standpoint. The only relationship it has to have a lot of A and a lot of B. And now that second position has a stress. And now it can't be sold because it's illiquid. And now it goes to the next one. So you get that same sort of uh, dynamic that occurs across different positions and different markets and finance. Well, I remember when Hank Paulson came out to Berkeley and right after Bear Stearns was having its problems. And he assured everybody that the problem had been more or less sealed off and the possibility of contagion was minimal. And I think when we're making models, whether we're doing it as academics or as practitioners, we circumscribe the universe in which we're, we're living just because we can't think infinitely. And so those, a lot of times those linkages, we kind of assume away just because it makes it more computationally easy to, to predict what's going to happen. And that's the whole nature of scientific pursuit or mathematical modeling. You need to figure out what's relevant and what isn't. You don't want the map to equal the territory. Otherwise, what's the point? And that's true with agent-based models also. In fact, one of the big problems that can occur is if you've got computer power, you can create an agent-based model with as many agents as you want. And you would think the more agents that you have, the better your model will be. But finally, the degrees of freedom just grow exponentially and it becomes, you can't figure out what's going on anymore. So the trick with an agent-based model is the same as it is with a model set of equations, that sort of model where you have to be parsimonious and robust. You have to try to understand the nature of the markets to know what sort of agents to put in. So you don't get rid of that map versus territory issue. But here's where things get a little non-academic. You can't just formulaically know what's important and what isn't if you start to deal with a real system. We only have one economic system. We only have Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs and Citi. We only have Fidelity and Putnam. We only have Citadel and Two Sigma. We kind of know what's there. And so if you try to build a system that works as well on Earth as on Mars, you're kind of missing the point because there's only one Earth and only one system. And I, I think a lot of what happens in academics is they're trying to develop a, a theory or a, a set of equations that could work if suddenly we encountered a financial market on Mars. Whereas if you're doing an HB system, you can pare it down to what's essential, knowing the nature of the markets themselves and the players in those markets. And that, I mean, it is kind of part art, part science, but the world is not all science. It is part art. It's part human. There's one other incident I want to ask you about, and we didn't even talk about the financial crisis, but the flash crash of 2010. I just recently interviewed Liam Vaughn, who wrote a book about the flash crash. And of course, he tells the story of Navinder 
Rao, the guy who, who was allegedly the proximate cause of the crash, who was arrested and convicted of engaging in spoofing. And you just talk about this as well. And of course, you're much less concerned about the proximate cause and more concerned about kind of the underlying structural causes of these types of flash crashes. And you tell this great story about kind of decimalization and how decimalization kind of set off some things that were unanticipated. How does that tie in with this idea of complexity and the greater complexity and the increasing layers of complexity that are being generated by actors who find complexity to be the way in which they create advantage? Yeah, so this is, I guess, another point of strategy. It's easier to hide what you're doing and to find problems to exploit in the market if it's a complex market. A good example of this is what happened pre-2008, where you got more and more complex derivatives. If you were a broker-dealer, you could make a lot more money if you had derivatives that were super complex, that were difficult for clients to price, but you could price them, or that most people couldn't hedge, but you could hedge. So there's a natural movement. You know, Part of the ability to make profit is to not only recognize issues in the market, or maybe recognize demands that are in the market that people want fulfilled, that other people don't recognize first. That's a positive thing. You're recognizing and supplying a service to the market before other people do, so you extract a rent for doing that. But you can also try to create vulnerabilities or complexities in the market that allow you to make money in ways that, where you've essentially created problems only to then solve the problem. You've started to burn the house only so you could then extinguish it and collect some sort of rent. That's why we need regulation, really, to sort of stem that natural characteristic in the market, to do things that don't necessarily improve the market, but create opportunities because they add complexity or vulnerabilities. You talk at the end of the book about how you contemplated becoming a novelist at one point, and that maybe literature can do a better job than logic at explaining what happens in financial markets. Now, I've actually interviewed two people so far this month who are economists who have written novels. And so huh. it has been done. And I was wondering, are you going to resuscitate that project? And what's the attraction there? Why do you find literature an interesting way of communicating information? I sort of abandoned my try at writing a novel. Part of the reason is that I'm too literally minded. And so anytime I posited something that could be attractive as a plot line, I figured out a way why, no, that wouldn't happen because somebody could figure this out. But one thing that I'm happy with in the end of theory is that there is a strong thread of literature working through it. And I, I really worked on that deliberately because the start of the second chapter of the book is, uh, as a start, consider that we're human. And from some of the stuff I've been talking about, you can see that the human component, I think, is a lot of what we have to recognize to be successful in understanding the markets, especially understanding risk. And of course, literature is a window into our humanity. So I think it's really valuable to go from the pure, hard-nosed sort of scientific area and try to understand the nature of how we feel and how we think. And so I use, I think, in a hopefully a correct way to illustrate points, a lot of different authors and different books. But the reason I think a novel is useful is I think of risk as a narrative, as a story. It's not a number, it's a story. When you get a risk of any material nature occurring, I've been head of risk management at two banks, a bunch of hedge funds, I've been in treasury. 
in any of these situations, when there's something really bad occurring, you get the senior people around a table and what they're actually doing, they're not calculating numbers. And it may be that the risk manager comes in the room with some sort of printout of here's where our risks are, you need to know that. But what they're really doing is they're telling each other's stories. Sort of like I was talking before, somebody will tell a story about what Morgan Stanley seems to be doing now and how that plot might emerge going forward. You know, what's that plot line? And there may be a subplot line and, and so on. That means if that's the way risks really evolve, which is really a storyline with subplots and so on, and if that's the way people actually try to grapple with it, when they're the major decision makers who will really be doing something, then you know again that a pure mathematical approach isn't going to work. And in fact, an agent-based approach isn't going to work totally. That finally, you have to go one step further and realize that at the end of the day, you have to have something that accommodates and works within the narrative of experienced people trying to grapple with things as far as they know them. But if that is the world, and I think it is, still an agent-based approach is going to be a better way to go. Because an agent-based approach embedded within it, you can extract out of it a type of narrative of how this agent's going to do things, and when they do it, how that'll affect the world, and when that happens, how it'll affect these other people. You can put it into a terms of a narrative, whereas a simple equation that says, oh, you know, I calculated the statistic and it's 12.3, leaves it's barren within that context. And so one of the things I learned in the book is that Flaubert discovered stupidity. And here I had thought all along that it was Larry Summers. <laughs> I learned a lot of things from the book. Thanks so much for uh, joining me today. And I think everyone should check out The End of Theory. Fantastic book. And, and this one too, even though it's 13 years old, it still has a lot of really interesting insight. It's not just sort of a timepiece. It's actually got really good stuff. And so I recommend both these books. Thanks again, Rick. Hope to see you next time you're out here at Cal. Swing by the class and talk to us. Don't just stay over in Oakland with the Cal. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Great. Thanks. All right. I'll see you. See you. Bye-bye. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.